Why, hello, awesome listener of the Cracked Podcast. You ought to let people know you're awesome with a website. I am so excited every time we have our sponsor, Squarespace, helping us make this show because they want to help you make an online shingle for yourself. Maybe you write, maybe you sell products, maybe you're just neat. Show it off with a customizable template by a world-class designer that has 24-7 support. Head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I'm also, also speaking to you from the former Mexican state of Alta, California. Uh, Of course, I'm talking about the current U.S. state of California. It is not news to you, I'm sure, that it used to be part of Mexico. Uh, It may be news to you how unwillingly this area joined the United States at the time. We will footnote a fantastic article from local PBS station KCET, and it's about L.A. in the Mexican-American War. The city was so upset about American conquest that the victorious U.S. Army had to build a hill fort in what's now downtown L.A. and point the fort's cannons at the city, not outward, uh, to quell a potential uprising. Because, uh, you know, there was a national border. Suddenly it jumped a thousand miles And the details were weird. We don't think about those details, right? Like, here's an extra fascinating one. Did you know that when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo ceded California and lots of other future U.S. states to the U.S., about 100,000 Mexican citizens and 200,000 Native Americans lived on that land that was now the United States? And did you know 90% of the Mexicans on that land stayed and became U.S. citizens, and the remaining 10% resettled south of the new border? There's details when things happen. It's a whole thing. And you would have known that whole last chunk of stuff if you're already familiar with the work of my fantastic guest this week. Dr. Reese Jones is the professor of geography and environment at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Dr. Jones is also the author of many excellent editorials on immigration and borders that you might have seen in outlets like The Guardian, and he's the author of a fantastic book on this subject called Violent Borders, Refugees, and the Right to Move. As world events move America toward a crueler border policy, and cruel is understating it, I know. Anyhow, I wondered if anybody is studying the history of borders and the history of border walls, because that's been such a trope, you know? Because in my head, a border wall other than being cruel, is ludicrously antique, right? It's stuff like the Great Wall of China or Hadrian's Wall or something from far, far long ago. Why would it be happening now? And it turns out not only does Dr. Reese Jones study the history of walls, he studies the very, very active present day of walls, a thing that I think most Americans and most people don't really know about. He also analyzes the larger world context in which Borders that have those walls are becoming militarized and are becoming spaces where murder is legal, basically, and about how those walls are the opposite of a throwback. We're going to get all the way into that and also rely on his firsthand experience of borders everywhere from U.S. and Mexico to the European Union to India and more. It's a topic that is extremely relevant, I think, and I think you'll be able to walk out of this episode with more of a knowledge of how walls work and what they mean than, uh, let's just go with basically anybody who's out there saying, build the wall, like some kind of redheaded person. Anyway, let's get into it. Please sit back, 
or walk around without getting harassed for trying to exist because that is how human beings should get to live. Either way, enjoy this episode of the Crack Podcast with Dr. Reese Jones. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I'm sort of curious how you got into this field exactly. What interested you the most in borders and migration and how it's becoming militarized in a lot of ways? Well, I've been studying borders for 15 years. And so when I was doing my uh, dissertation research, I was doing research in India and and Bangladesh. And I was doing research on just cross-border identity and connections. Um, But this was 2006. And while I was there, India, it turned out, was building this big border fence on their border, and there were all these killings happening at the border. Um, And at that same moment in 2006, the U.S. passed the Secure Fence Act, which authorized up to 700 miles of fencing and walls on the U.S.-Mexico border. Israel was building a wall on its border as well. Um, And so it just occurred to me, wow, there's this phenomenon happening of these border walls and of this um, this change in the way that countries are thinking about their borders. And so from that point on, I started to really focus on why countries are building these walls, what impact these walls have on people's lives and in border spaces um, and what it really means for the this era that we we call globalization, which, which is supposed to be an increasingly connected world where people are trading goods over space and people are moving around the world. But at the same time, these countries are building these walls and there's all this violence happening at borders. And it's, it seemed like a, a contradiction that no one was really talking about at the time. And it also seems like in your line of work studying this, you've experienced a lot of it firsthand, or at least in certain cases. At the start of your book, you talk about being in Morocco and a pretty harrowing experience there. Um, is there a lot of, I guess, travel and footwork and, and seeing these things firsthand? Yeah, absolutely. In, in my field, I'm a, a geographer and geographers tend to um, like to go to the places and do field research to actually uh, to talk about a particular subject. So whenever I focus on a, a particular border case, um, I always make a point of going there and talking to people on the ground and understanding what it's like to actually be there, to kind of experience that sense of place and the location. Um, but also the people who live there, they know. They know what's happening. They know the changes. They can give you that long-term perspective. So in the book, I look at uh, the in, in Violent Borders, I look at uh, the situation in Morocco with Spain. Spain has a couple of enclaves in northern Morocco that have been a central place for a lot of this conflict about migration. Um, I also have done field work in Israel and Palestine, looking at the wall there. Um, I mentioned India and Bangladesh previously. And of course, I've, I've done quite a bit of work at the U.S.-Mexico border as well. That's you, You've been all over the world. It's incredible. I'm also curious how many people who are listening realize that I think when they hear about the U.S.-Mexico border and they hear about our current president demanding that a wall be built there, I I feel like almost everyone has a misunderstanding of it in a pretty basic way. Like, I think I went into that issue before thinking that the U.S.-Mexico border does not have a wall of really any kind, and we want to do this completely novel, unlike the rest of the world thing, of building one there it seems from your work like an actuality that 
not only is there already a lot of different kinds of barriers on that U.S.-Mexico border, it's also something that is happening all over the world in all sorts of different countries. Is that true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, you mentioned several several things to, to unpack in that question. Oh, um, sure. the, <laughs> um, yeah, the, the first is, is of course, that, um, that Trump talks about the U.S.-Mexico border as if it's this open place where people can just kind of freely stroll across the border and, and come into the United States. And that's just simply not accurate. And that hasn't been accurate really since maybe the, the 1980s. Um, it was probably relatively easy to cross the border then. Since the mid-1990s, um, the Border Patrol has expanded dramatically. Just to give you some some data to kind of demonstrate it, in, in 1990, the U.S. had about 3,500 Border Patrol agents, and the Border Patrol's budget was about $300 million in 1990. Um, whereas today, the Border Patrol has 20,000 agents, and their budget is over $4 billion. Um, so there's been this dramatic expansion of the, the security there at the border. And there's also fencing already at that border. So the first fencing was built in the 1990s, um, but the largest section was, was built after the Secure Fence Act, which, as I mentioned previously, passed in 2006, and it passed with bipartisan support. Barack Obama was a senator then. He voted in favor of it. So did Hillary Clinton. So did Joe Biden, um, Charles Schumer as well, Chuck Schumer, um, the, the Senate minority leader at the moment. It passed relatively easily, and that authorized um, up to 700 miles of fencing and walls on the U.S.-Mexico border. And the, the U.S.-Mexico border is, is 1,969 miles long, so that's about a third of the, the border that is, is fenced, and they built that right away. So um, that was done by 2009. So since 2009, there's been a, a little bit over 650 miles of fences and walls on the U.S.-Mexico border. And when we talk about this fence, how how different is it from a wall? Like I feel like maybe if people hear fence and they think some kind of little chain link thing, but it's, it also seems from reading about it like it's a barrier that is in every way a wall. It's just fence shaped. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So scholars <laughs> scholars actually tend to use the word wall as the just the kind of de facto term to refer to all of these different structures that are being built in borders, um, because they uh, you're right that that although they may be see through, for example, or they may be steel mesh or something like that, the effect of them is the equivalent of a wall. So at the U.S.-Mexico border, there are a lot of different types of fencing that have been built. They the border patrol assessed what was necessary in different locations. Um, but the largest section that they built in that 2006 uh, authorization is a 20-foot high um, steel mesh fence, a wall, which is designed to stop a truck from driving 60 miles an hour, smashing into it. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah, so 20 feet high, um, extremely strong. But they did do it as a steel mesh because the Border Patrol agents um, do like to be able to see through the barrier. Um, and the reason they like that is because then they can see if people are moving around on the other side. And there is an issue of people throwing rocks, for example, over the, the fence. And so if it's a big concrete barrier, the Border Patrol agents say they can't see what's happening on the other side. So um, so for those reasons, it is a, a fence officially in the, in the sense that it's a metal kind of mesh structure but in all intents and purposes, it's the equivalent of a wall. And this is, and you said this is over already constructed across about a third of the U.S. border, and was 
put into place by laws from, I guess, over a decade ago. That's right. So there's there's all kinds of different sorts of fencing at the border. So the first parts were built in uh, the mid-1990s. And for those, they used, they recycled these old helicopter landing mats from the Vietnam era. So it's actually these big sheets of metal um, that then they stood up on their end and put them along um, the fence. So if you go near San Diego, for example, that's the type of fencing um, that they have there. Um, although the recent, the 2018 um, budget uh, appropriated money to replace that. So they are, they are gonna change that. In other sections, um, they built a vehicle barrier and not a pedestrian barrier. So what that looks like, so that's often in really remote desert areas. And what that'll look like is almost like a guardrail at the edge of a of a road. And what that's designed to do is to stop a truck driving across the border. Um, that's particularly targeting drug smuggling. But pedestrians can hop right over it um, in, in those sections. So there's a whole variety of different things there um, that they've built. But the largest sections of it is that um, that 20 foot high um, steel mesh is, is the, the most predominant thing. That's such complex fortification. I also, I had no idea the newest budget not only sets up money to quote unquote, build the wall. It also sets up money to rebuild the wall. That's insane to me that Uh, (laughs) that, that never comes up. Yeah. Most of the money in the new budget is to rebuild the wall. Um, So the, there's $1.6 billion in the budget for walls and fences. 14 miles of that is to be, is that replacement at San Diego, and it's actually a double fence, so they're replacing both sections of that fence. Um, so when the bud- when the Border Patrol talks about it, they count it twice, so they'll call that 28 miles of fencing at, um, oh, no at way. San Diego. Yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, they're, they're also replacing um, four miles at El Paso. The, the only new sections that are part of this most recent budget is about 33 miles in the Rio Grande Valley, so down near like McAllen, Texas, where the Rio Grande goes into the Gulf of Mexico, um, they're building a wall. Okay. On a, they're building a wall on a levee there along the river, um, and then eight miles of just uh, just fencing. Wow! It seems like that approach to our borders fencing—that's essentially walls. It seems like it would be disappointing to the entire American political spectrum, right? Because someone who does not want there to be a wall, I think, would be shocked to learn that there already essentially is one. And then also someone who uh, is furious about immigrants, right, and really, really wanted to vote for a guy who would stop them should probably be pretty upset that they're not really going to get much more barrier than they already have. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's absolutely right. Um, the, the, in some ways, some scholars who, who've done work on walls kind of joked about it as, as all this discussion was happening um, during the campaign, um, is we kind of hoped that Trump would, you know, become, if he became president, would just take credit for the walls that were already built, right? And just go do some photo ops near these 20-foot high sections and say, look, I did it. Have, you know, so, that, so that he didn't have to actually build anything new. Um, and in some way, they are doing that already. So you'll, he's tweeted several images of border fence construction. Um, and this was near Calexico um, uh, uh, in California. Um, and, uh, but that, that had been approved several years before. That was approved during the Obama administration. So he's essentially taking credit fencing that Obama had authorized the, the reconstruction of. So Yeah, well, that is, that is the only area that he's doing that in, for sure. <laughs> uh, the only part of policy. 
I because <laughs> I've also I've seen pictures of it'll be a some kind of place in the desert, and then there will be seven or eight sort of sample bits of wall, right? Like it'll just be a little chunk, and they all look different, and they're all sort of prototypes. Are they doing prototype photo ops for something that they've basically already figured out and constructed? Yeah. So those prototypes, they're they're <laughs> yeah, they're near San Diego. Um, those prototypes and. Um, those are all 30 feet high, right? Because of course Trump has to have the biggest, oh uh, biggest wall. And part of the the call for that also said that it had to look good from the U.S. side. Um, that was part of the the requirements for um, no building. Way. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but none of those are being constructed at the border. In fact, that 1.6 billion dollars. Um, that was authorized earlier this year as part of the budget. It says explicitly that the um, that the border patrol has to use previous um, models of border fencing, and that they can't use um, this most recent style. That's something that the Democrats uh, inserted in there. So that um, so no, those are still just photo ops for the president. He of course visited those a couple what about a month and a half ago, and and took some photos there. And I think Mike Pence has also been there to the. For the prototypes as well. I think, yeah, I think you're right. And well, also that's interesting that it sounds like the members of Congress are aware of this difference and are aware of what's going on with that. If they're writing the laws in that way, it just seems like maybe the rest of us don't see the reporting for one reason or another. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and well, I think the Democrats they tried to be very firm about no new border wall, right? I mean, that was something that they could not, it was their red line, I guess. Um, and so when the budget discussions were happening, they they were really insistent um, that they could, could not let Trump get credit for building a new wall there at the border. And so that's, I think, why they inserted that that in there. They agreed to fixing these sections and this little bit of new section near in um, Southern Texas, but it's it's not his symbolic wall. Um, so that's part of the, the political calculus there. Right, yeah. And then uh, as far as those walls, they are also patrolled by a border patrol. And it's been very fascinating reading your work on it and looking at the history of that patrol because I had no idea that there was not even a border patrol agency until 1924. Is that right? That's right. Um, a, a thing that I think a lot of people don't realize when they're thinking about the, the history of immigration laws to the United States um, the, the U.S. had no federal immigration laws at all until 1875. In 1875, Congress passed a law limiting um, Chinese prostitutes from entering the United States. Um, and then 1882, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act that, that prevented all people of Chinese heritage from entering the United States. Um, so those are really the first immigration laws that the U.S. had on a federal basis. Prior to that, individual states had some rules on who could enter and who couldn't. But most of the people who had been coming to the U.S. in the early 1800s were coming from northern Europe and were coming from the U.K. And really, the U.S. needed more people at the time. Um, and so there was most of the immigration laws were actually more focused on recruiting more people to come rather than trying to put, in, put on any sorts of limits. It's really when people of different racial backgrounds start to enter the United States that suddenly it becomes necessary to put in place these these laws. Um, so the really the origins of um, immigration law in the United States is based on racial exclusion. It's about defining a, a, a white nation and restricting other peoples who might be coming here um, that didn't fit into that definition of white. Um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. 
yeah, if you look at the debates in the in the Senate, you're probably not going to go look at the Senate debates, I'm guessing, <laughs> about the Chinese Exclusion Act. But that that's my job, right? That's what I do as a professor. Um, but uh, but that's that's what it's what the debates are about over and over again is um, senators standing up and saying that you know that that we need to protect this white identity um, and the way that we can do that is through these immigration restrictions. So then that that whole process happens again in 1924 and in 1924 the fear is more about southern Europeans and eastern Europeans coming into the U.S. who are also not part of the at the time, the definition of this kind of white Nordic Anglo-Saxon definition of who is really an American. So the the first national laws, universal laws about who can enter the U.S. is the 1924 um, Johnson-Reed Immigration Act, which sets up quotas on different countries. And so the Border Patrol is established that same year, in fact, two days after the Johnson-Reed Act is signed. Um, and their job is to enforce these new quotas about um, who can enter the United States. And those quotas are based on protecting a racial definition of, of who is an American. Because these organizations change across history and their purpose and where they come from. But it sounds like the Border Patrol was at least at its creation explicitly enforcing an explicitly racist law. That's uh, interesting as far as their background goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, the other thing is that at, the, at their start, at least, their focus was not on Mexican immigration because the 1924 law accepted all of the Americas. Oh, wow. There, was, there were no restrictions on the number of Mexicans that could enter the United States in that 1924 law. However, the Border Patrol, in their early history, they get to the border. There are only a few hundred, 300 agents to start off with. Right for a 2,000 mile border, um, but uh, they, they had a kind of wide latitude of what they could look for and what they could do. And what many of them end up doing is targeting Mexicans, but not because Mexicans aren't allowed to enter the United States, but because Mexicans needed to pay a tax to enter the United States. There was a, um, a border tax of, I think at the time it was $6 in the 1920s, which was a fairly large amount of money at the time. A lot of Mexicans would just cross the border in the wide open areas around that, not pay that $6 tax and come and work in the US. Um, and so much of the early work of the Border Patrol was actually rounding up Mexicans who hadn't paid the head tax at the border and deporting them. Oh, they were they were like an IRS or a, I don't know, some sort of sales tax police. I don't know yeah. what the comparable group would be, but something yeah, some, like that. Yeah, something like that. That's, that's incredible. Well, and that's fascinating to me too, that they would take anybody from across the Americas, at least on paper. And then meanwhile, the Chinese Exclusion Act you mentioned was on the books for 61 years as a straight up prohibition on the immigration of Chinese people to America from 1882 to 1943. Uh, I mean, racism is about as old as the country and uh, or any country, I suppose. It seems like the very, very specific fixation on Mexican immigration is a relatively recent phenomenon. Yeah, I think that's true. And so the, the reason that the Mexican immigration was accepted from the 1924 law is that agricultural interests needed workers. You know, slavery, of course, had ended um, 60 years before that. 
and they had tried having Chinese workers, but they the, there had been quite a lot of racism targeted towards the Chinese, and so um, so that hadn't worked out, and so they needed to find some sort of a labor source to work in the fields of California, and of course California by that time they had captured a lot of the the water, had built dams, and so there was a it was a very productive agricultural region. Um, and so the thinking was, and if you, again, look at the, the debates at the time, was that the Mexicans would go home um, because they lived close by. And so they could come and work seasonally and then they could go back to their homes in Mexico. And so um, they weren't immigrating permanently to the, the U.S., um, at least under that theory at the time. Um, whereas someone coming from China or coming from Greece or Italy um, were a much more permanent immigrant. And so that's they crossed that was an ocean. Trip. Yeah, exactly. Oh. It was a much more involved trip. And so the argument was that we can still have these Mexicans come work here, but then they'll go back to Mexico to live with their families. Um, so that it was more of a kind of a seasonal rotation through. Yeah. And then what changed? It seems like maybe the borders got harder and more fixed. And as, as you describe in the book, the border patrol went from a couple hundred guys to a military force hardening the border, then kept people within the country, something like that. Yeah. The, I mean, there were a series of changes that happened in the, the turn it towards more of a focus on the Mexican um, issue. Um, the, the one thing that the one piece of context that we should mention first is that in um, World War II, when many American men were off at war, um, the U.S. set up a, a system called the Bracero Program, which was a formal guest worker system. And so imported um, hundreds of thousands of Mexican men to come work in the fields um, across the entire United States while American men were, across, were away um, fighting in wars. And so um, that Bracero Program continued until the early 1960s. And so what that oh, did wow. is it, um, it established kind of those networks of farm labor for Mexican migrants, not only in California, but across the U.S. So after 1964, that program was ended and Mexico had been added to the, the immigration laws as well in 1952. But nevertheless, those networks were still there. The border was relatively open. And so what had been legal migration prior to that, um, after 1964, officially became illegal migration um, that was not authorized, but the people continued to go, the farms still needed the workers, the workers still needed the jobs, um, and so those migrations continued after that, that program ended. It's not until the 1980s, really, that um, the Border Patrol starts to ramp up its, its actions at the border, and that's more tied to the war on drugs. So in, in the 1980s, the U.S. was focused on this drug issue. Um, and it became clear that a lot of the drugs that were entering the United States were coming across the border from Mexico. Um, so a lot of eyes turned to the Border Patrol to, to do a better job of disrupting these cartel networks crossing the border. Um, and so it's, it's in that late 1980s, early 1990s, that the budgets start to increase for the Border Patrol. They start to have more agents and they start to figure out how they can really control this border space. Um, and really Mexican labor migration gets wrapped up into that same sort of a process that as they're um, putting more agents at the border, the people that they're finding are poor workers coming to work in the fields. Um, so not as much of the, the drug smuggling, um, although that was the original intent. And I hear these different things about sort of the different purposes of the U.S.'s approach to the Mexico border. Has there, is there anything consistent about 
America's treatment of that border and treatment of people coming through it, because I, I feel like a lot of the arguments for toughening it and even some of the arguments for quote unquote weakening it are based on tradition and based on history, not in a in an ex- explicit concrete way, really, but just sort of a, oh, the vibe of America is to do X or Y with it. Is there anything sort of concrete and standard and carrying through about how the U.S. has handled the Mexico border? Uh, no, I would say that it's just, <laughs> um, that it has changed. Okay, I cool. mean, <laughs> yeah, if you, I mean, if you look at each decade, it's going to look completely different. You know, the the way that the the U.S. is engaged in it. So, I think a couple of key changes, though, the the big changes are the mid 1990s. Um, when this money for the war on drugs starts to flow to the border border patrol. Um, And they try out a new system in the 1990s. Prior to the 1990s, what they mostly did is they didn't stand right at the border. Instead, they would kind of hang back along paths that they knew that people often crossed on, and then they would arrest people once they were in the United States and then deport them. But in the 1990s, they switched to a deterrence model. And what the deterrence model does is is to close down those easiest ways to cross the border. So essentially to build that fencing in San Diego, um, to build fencing in El Paso, to put more agents right at the border in those places where people were frequently crossing and make it harder to cross. Um, They know that they couldn't completely control the border, but the idea was force people over more difficult terrain, discourage them from trying to cross the border. That that change has some really profound impacts on the border um, because the this deterrent strategy works perfectly and it also completely fails, right? And so <laughs> <laughs> that's so, a lot at once. Yeah, so it works <laughs> because at the places where they do this in San Diego, um, when they put a lot of people there at the border, when they put the fence there, crossings there go down to zero, right? So they show um, that it's completely effective to put the fence and put a lot of agents and guards those sections of the border. But there's only 14 miles of fencing at San Diego. Um, so what they found is that people just went to a different place and crossed, right? So when they did these missions, um, they found that the total number of crossings at the border didn't change. They were just diverting people over different places um, to cross the border. So it's a complete mm. failure in terms of actually controlling the border, although they were able to control particular sections of it. I hear that and I think of people at a company with a, like a performance review coming up and they want to have numbers that look X, Y, or Z way to make themselves look good. How much of this border policing is driven by people's different departments wanting the stats to look right? Like you mentioned before that they double count fencing where there's two layers to it in terms of the amount of fencing chunks they've built. Like, is the San Diego department being proud of their zero crossings while another area is where people go instead? Yeah, absolutely. But that actually works in both ways in favor of the Border Patrol. Um, and here's why. Because oh. on the one hand, they can say, look, we if you give us the funding and you give us the fence and you give us the money and the agents, we can stop the crossings. But also look, look over here at this other sector Crossings have gone up dramatically there. If you give us all this money, we can stop it there too, right? And so that's what's been happening over the last 25 years at the border since the mid-1990s is this kind of continuous ratcheting up, right, of more agents, more money, more fencing, and then kind of funneling people who are crossing to ever more dangerous places to cross the border. 
in terms of people actually getting across the border, it's questionable about whether it's been effective or not. Um, but one very clear impact that it's had is it's increased the number of deaths at the border. As you force people, instead of just being able to jog across the border at San Diego, you instead have to trek 60 miles through the deserts of Arizona, more people are going to die in that process. And that's, that's what we've seen at the, the U.S.-Mexico border. But we can also scale that up and think about it globally. We've seen a very similar process in Europe and Australia as well, where as it's become much harder to cross these borders, people continue to try to do so, but do so in these really dangerous ways. Um, and we see these dramatic increases in the number of deaths at borders. How much of a comfort with those deaths is also based on how we process stats as people and as departments of things? Because it, it seems like with a lot of the stories in your book, it becomes a thing where a death happens at the border and the security force says that uh, there is simply no way to measure exactly why it happened or something like that. Are these sort of spaces where death sort of becomes a, a not a legal thing, but a thing that's nobody's fault? As a scholar, I would say that the Border Patrol has weaponized the desert, right? They've turned nature into something that is an effective way to kill people, right? To send them over this dangerous place so that the Border Patrol itself is not carrying out the act. Um, but nevertheless, their infrastructure, their walls, and their agents are forcing people through these places. So I would say that they're culpable for it. Um, but nevertheless, yeah. they can they can um, hold their hands back and say, we didn't do that exactly. One of the things that's actually interesting about it is in, in a lot of ways, the Border Patrol represents itself as a humanitarian organization now. Um, and they often trumpet the fact that they rescue a lot of people in the desert. And so they, you know, they swoop in and find a group of migrants in the desert. They provide them water. They provide them, you know, emergency medical care. Um, they also describe it as saving them from the cartels. But the, the thing that I would point out about that is those people wouldn't be there in that location if the Border Patrol wasn't there in the first place, building these fences and, and forcing them into these more dangerous locations. But nevertheless, in terms of the government narrative, it very much the blame is put on the cartels um, and the human smugglers and the migrants themselves are deciding to go to these more dangerous places and the impact of the rules and the infrastructure that's been built there is often overlooked. Well, and we've seen in particular recently just news, accurate news reporting of horrific and just heinous conditions that migrants are being kept in. Is that is that PR push by the Border Patrol something that's a response to that or does it predate it? Predates it. Um, they, oh, okay. They've definitely been talking about themselves as a humanitarian organization for 15 years now. I don't know if you've ever watched the, there's a TV show uh, uh, on the National Geographic channel called Border Wars, which is in its like maybe fifth, sixth season, something like that. Um, but that, that show started in 2009, 2010, something like that. And, and a big theme on that show is that humanitarian role that the Border Patrol plays. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't seen that show, but I think you mentioned it in your book. And then also talk about a few other ways that the media processes this thing going on, because we, we get varying amounts of accurate information on how it's going. But apparently Fox News labels their border stories as America's third war. Like it's as if Afghanistan's number one, Iraq's number two, and then our own border is number three. That seems like a really, really cruel framing to me. Yeah, um, but I think that that's the, I'm not sure that they still do that, but definitely for five or six years in the you know 2007 to 2012 period, 
Um, that's how they reported any story about the border um, had that um, that caption at the bottom of it, um, d- describing the situation there as if it's a war, which is uh, is a really extreme way to describe what's happening at the border. Um, there, yeah. There's no doubt um, that the border is a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place for migrants crossing it. Um, because they're one, they're now forced to use the cartels to cross the border, and um, you know many of these cartels are, are bad actors, right? I mean, I'm not going to defend the the actions of these the, the sure. people, um, but the the people who are moving, uh, migrating, looking for jobs in the U.S., they're now forced to use those those groups, and so that's really dangerous. The other thing that I think is surprising often to people is that as the border has become more hardened as it's more difficult to move people but also goods across the border that's actually good for the cartels because if it was easy for just anybody to carry a bag of marijuana across the border then there wouldn't be a lot of profit in that Um, now that it's fairly difficult to do that it's really only these these really sophisticated cartels that can control those smuggling networks um, so they've seen their profits increase um, because of this the security because it it makes you know it's a scarcity issue it makes it harder for people to move things across the border um, and so the people that can do it make a lot more money doing it yeah is it is it a fair comparison to bring up alcohol prohibition within the US in the 20s when there were people suddenly Al Capone has a business because no one else can make alcohol or sell it absolutely and that's the prohibition is also the origin of the cartels along the US Mexico border Border, right. That's when they got into sure. business was um, smuggling alcohol into the United States because you know when when prohibition came into place there were no laws about um, migrants coming in from Mexico. It was still legal for Mexicans to enter the U.S. freely um, at that time, and so that wasn't their original purpose, right? Instead, it was yeah. the the prohibition of alcohol that set up those smuggling networks, and then after alcohol was made legal, it switched over to, to various drugs and and now human smuggling. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Listen, it is 2018. Soon it will be 2019. These are years that feel like they are from the future in terms of the number, right? These are Blade Runner years. This is way, way out there. It's time you got a website. If you don't already have one, or even if you'd like one that's even better, it seems like something you can do for yourself. And guess what? Squarespace makes it easy. You don't need to do any kind of crazy coding that that is a very, very specialized skill. You can assemble your own great site from a template created by a world-class designer. You'll have 24-7 support as you build it. Also, your website will work well on mobile. I always say this. We have, we have all kinds of analytics here at crack.com. And they let us know how people are using the internet, and most of them are using it on their phones. A phone might be how you're hearing the show. You're probably also going to use the internet on it today, so you know that's true. Why don't you have a website that will look great on that device? Squarespace wants to empower people, from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms, to turn great ideas into something real. They're doing it for millions of people out there. Why don't you join them? Head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com cracked, offer code cracked. I feel like there are movies now like Sicario about this drug problem at the border. There are also just, there's a general concept that the U.S.-Mexico border 
I think most Americans see it as unique. Like they look at the U.S.-Canada border, ha, 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 you just go get Tim Hortons and come back and it's no big deal. And then this other one's completely different, even though uh, who knows if it is. But it seems like the kind of situation at the U.S.-Mexico border is somewhat common across the world, right? Like you, you in particular mentioned India and Bangladesh being somewhere you've done a lot of work in. And I learned from your book that India's version of Border Patrol is the most lethal border force in the past few years in terms of uh, numbers of casualties. Also, India has the most miles of walls and fences in the world. That's, I think, something that most Americans don't realize. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if we could just talk a little more generally, prior to the kind of the contemporary era, so after World War II, um, there were very few border walls anywhere in the world um, because this issue of migration across borders um, hadn't really become the, the issue that it is today. Um, so at the end of World War II, there were about five border walls anywhere in the world. If we fast forward all the way to the year 2000, just before September 11th, um, there were about 15 border walls around the world, whereas today there, um, there are 77 border walls. So three quarters of the walls around the world have been built in the last 20 years. So it really is a very contemporary and new phenomenon. And definitely the U.S. is not unique in that, right? I mean, there um, there are dozens of other walls that are going up in other places around the world. A lot of those are in the Middle East. Um, There are quite a number there. A number have been built in Europe in the last few years as well. Hungary, Bulgaria, Turkey building building walls and fences. But you're right that um, India has the most fences in terms of um, just the length of their borders. I mean, they have the border with Pakistan, which is um, 1,400 miles long. Um, there's about 1,200 miles of fencing on that border. They have a 1,000-mile border with Myanmar that has um, a few hundred miles of fencing on it. Um, but the, the largest, longest one is their border with Bangladesh. That's a 2,500-mile border, and it's got probably 2,200 miles of fencing and walls on it. Um, so it's a, um, a, a highly securitized place. And in some ways, it kind of mirrors the, the U.S.-Mexico border story. Um, the, the issue is migration. There are estimated to be maybe 15 million Bangladeshis who live in India and work in India um, and so the fencing of the border is, is the narratives are very similar. It's about stopping this migration, these people coming to work and taking jobs, supposedly. Uh, but also it's a cultural thing that uh, Bangladesh is a predominantly Muslim country, whereas India, at least the majority of the population is Hindu. And so um, the, the, the same way that Trump today talks about this kind of invasion and cultural takeover of the United States, the same sort of rhetoric is happening in India about Islam coming into the country. It also seems worth picking out how, and you do so in the book, but how a lot of the land that these migrants from Mexico into the United States, and then also these migrants from Bangladesh into India, a lot of the land they're trying to get to is land that they used to be in the same country as, if, if you kind of frame it as a broader historical thing. Like, uh, we obviously know that the United States took the whole Southwest from Mexico in a war. And uh, then also there was a sort of business then in terms of determining who would end up in which country after that, which I hadn't really known about. But then also, I think few people, at least in the U.S., know about the partition of India in 1947. And in the book, you describe Bangladesh as being a Bengali state that does not contain the city of Kolkata, the center of Bengali culture. And it's sort of like if Paris wasn't in France. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. So prior to 1947, all of 
South Asia, which would be you know Sri Lanka, India, Burma, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. All of that was British India. Um, so it was a British colonial territory. They'd been there since um, since the 1750s um, in in Calcutta, at least. Um, so when the British left in 1947, there was a a big debate and issue. Um, you know, this is the time of Gandhi, right? Of of what should replace this? What should um, uh, the British leave behind when they eventually leave India? Um, and there was some discussion of just making it one big country as it had been um, during the British period. But the eventual decision was to partition it based on religion. And so the idea was that Pakistan would be a country for the Muslims of South Asia, um, and then India would be a country for Hindus, but also people of all other faiths. And so the Pakistan that was created in 1947 was actually had two separate parts that were a thousand miles apart, right? So there's the current contemporary Pakistan, um, which is up towards Afghanistan. And then there was also what's today Bangladesh. In 1947, that was also part of Pakistan um, because it was a majority Muslim area. Yeah, so it's a completely arbitrary border. Eventually, Bangladesh the, the idea of these two separate halves of Pakistan that have a different language, a different culture, no historical connection to each other, um, it doesn't work. You're probably shocked that that didn't work out, but it didn't. <laughs> um, but uh, so Bangladesh eventually had an independence movement in the um, 1960s and got its independence in 1971. Um, but it creates this odd situation where there's a country of Bangladesh. It means the country of the Bengalis. Um, but they're also, and the population is about 150 million people in Bangladesh. But across the border in India, there's a province called West Bengal that has a population of about 80 million people um, that also speaks Bengali, has cultural heritage of Bengali. Um, and so they're nevertheless, it's been partitioned for, you know, coming up on 75 years. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the they have this shared cultural heritage and cross-border connections. In that case, it's particularly galling for some people that this fence is being put up there and that there's this violence at this border because the people on both sides speak the same language. They have relatives on both sides of the border. They're used to moving very freely across this border space. So um, so India securitizing it has been, uh, has been really painful for a lot of people. And it, it's also fascinating or been fascinating to learn that not only is Bangladesh being walled off from India, but then uh, the Rohingya in Myanmar are being walled off from Bangladesh. It seems like almost every country in the world is either inflicting a border or having a border inflicted on it by another country. Are, are there any outliers who are just super happy right now and, and not involved in this process at all? No, it doesn't seem oh, like boy. it does it. Right? <laughs> um, I, I always do point out Ecuador, the country of Ecuador, their constitution does say that everyone in the world has the right to freedom of movement and, and does oh, not wow. restrict freedom of movement to, um, to people of its own country. But as far as I know, that's the only country that has um, has a constitution that says that all other countries reserve the right to exclude people from entering their their country. You know, there is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So in the when the United Nations was established in the 1940s, they put together this document that was supposed to lay out what the basic human rights are. And freedom of movement is one of the rights that's guaranteed under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's the 13th clause of that declaration. Um, but it's a limited right to movement. It, it says that all humans have a right to movement within their country. So you're free to go anywhere you want within a particular country and um, that everyone has the right to leave any country 
and everyone has the right to enter their home country. So the, the only limitation in that declaration is the, the right to enter any other country. Um, but of course, that's a big, uh, a big exception for sure. Wow. Yeah, because I'm not that familiar with that document or how it applies to things. That's good to know. And also from reading your book, I was surprised to learn that I think a lot of our conception of how borders work is a relatively new idea on a historical scale, like those UN rights to have limited freedom of movement within your own country is much more restrictive than how things were, it seems like, as recently as the 1500s and even early 1600s. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, or I would say even much later than that. I mean, the the idea of having a passport and using a passport to cross a border to enter another country, um, that's something that really only emerged um, in the early 20th century. So, um, the United States did not have a universal passport requirement until the end of World War II. Um, and in Europe, most wow. of the countries there didn't require passports until um, after World War I. So, so it's, a, it's a relatively new idea to have these limitations on who can enter a country and doing those restrictions based on nationalities. In these past earlier eras, the people who could actually travel over these long distances were often the wealthy elite of a, of a country, right? So they were the ones that had the opportunity to, to get on a boat and to go over these long distances. So the issue of the poor wanting to move to a different place just wasn't a phenomenon um, prior to the 1800s, right? I mean, scholars estimate that three quarters of the world's population were were slaves or indentured servants in 1800. So, so the notion of just a regular average person moving freely around the world is a very recent concept. Because it also seems like, and I think you mentioned in the book too, that even being able to concretely say where borders are is just technologically relatively recent. It was just not something that was easy to do in the past. And there's even weird wrinkles to that in the present day. Like there was a report in the podcast on the media, which we will footnote. Um, they did a piece about Google Maps and the people at Google have run into issues with various national governments where the national governments have wanted Google to list the border on Google Maps the particular way that government thinks it is. And Google couldn't reconcile the governments. So, for instance, with there's some disputed borders between China and India. And so Google just shows you what China thinks it is when you're in China and shows you what India thinks it is when you're in India. And that's yeah. their solve. That's how they're dealing with it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there are lots of similar issues to that. You know, one of the things that the, the problem in the past, at least, was the, the ability to draw a large scale map of an area um, was a, a cartographic innovation of the 1500s and 1600s. Prior to that, um, most people would have never seen a map of the world. That's, that sort of thing just didn't exist as a, as a common object. And so most of the borders that we have today are inventions after that, right? Once it was possible to draw a line on the map, then we could have a border um, that, dis that divides two different groups of people in that way. But one of the challenges that, that often gets faced is, 
it's it's one thing to draw a map and to draw a line on it, but it's a whole different thing to actually figure out where that is out there in the world. And uh, the the U.S.-Mexico border is one example of that. The border was established in the 18. 40s and, and early 1850s at the end of the Mexican-American War, um, but they didn't actually go out and survey and locate where that line was on the ground until the 1890s. So it, it existed wow. on a piece of paper, but it didn't really exist out there in the world. And there, there are lots of examples, just to kind of tell some funny stories about that, is that surveying techniques in the 1800s were not really that exact. Um, so. Yeah. Often the the map would draw it a line in a particular place, but when they would actually go out and try to survey where it was, um, it would actually be in a different location because they can't do it really that accurately. And one example of that in in the Western U.S., there's the Four Corners National Monument. It's where um, uh, where the Four Corners of what what states are, are that okay. Arizona, yeah, New but, Mexico, maybe, and then yeah, oh, but, Colorado uh, and Utah and Arizona, Utah. New Mexico. Okay. Yeah, there we go. So yeah, so um, you know they drew they drew the maps of where that should be, and then they went out and surveyed where it was. But they were off by a few hundred yards um, in when they actually <laughs> marked it, right? So um, so that monument was actually in the wrong place in the first place, you know, when they actually marked it on the ground. But then the way that the law works is that actually once they survey it, then that becomes the official border. So then they redrew the maps to mark where they had actually located the wrong place on the ground. My mom is from Iowa and she had told me, and then I read about it later to check into it, you know, uh, but I heard about a story called the Honey War, which is another uh, like surveying issue of the old US where they had done some pretty vague language about the Iowa-Missouri border. And then both states tried to collect taxes in a strip of land that was sort of in both states. And it ended with both militias coming out and facing each other. And then one of them stole some beehives off of a tree because the honey was worth something. And so it was uh, like this bloodless conflict in 1839 between the Iowa Territory and the state of Missouri because surveying was just not that good. They just yeah. weren't that good at figuring out where anything was in the world. It's absolutely true, right? Because, you know, th that's the thing that we, when we think of maps, we often think of maps as if they're these fact-based things based on the world around us. But if you stop and really think about it, what is it? A map, you know, a paper map, it's, it's some lines drawn on a piece of paper, right? It's a drawing, it's a representation of an idea it doesn't necessarily correspond exactly to something out there in the world. Um, and so connecting those things together is, is one of the challenges that um, geographers of past eras had to deal with, of actually you know, mapping out and locating where these things are, surveying it, and trying to get this imagined idea drawn on a map to correspond with the real world out there. Yeah, now I'm thinking of those old, old maps that they used to draw of the world where there would be a bunch of dragons in the oceans. Was that just like a nice distraction to, to make people feel good about a really, really weird map where South America is a circle and stuff like that? Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, if you if if you don't know what's there, you might as well fill it in with something, right? You don't want to just have a yeah. big white er, empty area. So draw draw a couple dragons. <laughs> and then, as far as what we do, right? Because I, I we 
on the show, whenever we can, we try to leave people with solutions or positives. And it seems like the process of litigating these borders and, and making them better spaces will kind of be an ongoing thing because it's all over the place. You did a piece in The Guardian called Why Democrats Should Support Open Borders. And the subheadline of it was, the Republican position is coherent but racist. The Democrats need a forceful pro-immigration rebuttal to beat it. How does that sum up that debate? Where are kind of both sides at? And, and is there, not that you even necessarily have to take a political stance, but is there a sort of po more positive approach to that border that we could take? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have another book coming out next year that's called Open Borders, and it, it lays out kind of a case for why allowing more people to move freely around the world is a net positive thing. The thing that's often frustrating to me as a scholar who looks at these issues and is interested in research and data is that the data is completely in favor of allowing people to move freely around the world. Um, the, the, there's study after study has shown that if you allow more immigrants into a country, it has an economic benefit to the country receiving those immigrants. Um, and the reason for that is it's pretty obvious because um, those immigrants not only work a job on their own, but then they also contribute to the economy by uh, renting an apartment, by going to a restaurant, by going to a store and buying food, um, by taking a taxi. So all of those things feed into the economy of those places. But but Reese, they, they almost sound like they're people like you and me. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, shocking, right? <laughs> uh, you know, and the, the other thing about the, the ways that immigrants are represented, there's, there's this constant narrative that they don't want to assimilate, right? That they bring their different culture and they change the place that they arrive in. Um, but studies show that that's not accurate, that, that most immigrants after a generation or two do in integrate into the place that they immigrated to. So that's a, a false story. Trump also talks a lot about immigrants committing crime, but that's another one that study after study has shown that in the U.S. case, immigrants commit fewer crimes than native-born citizens. So no matter how you break it down, if you look at legal immigrants to the U.S., if you look at undocumented immigrants to the U.S., all of them commit fewer crimes than native-born citizens of the United States do in the U.S. So, um, so all of the arguments that you hear about why we need to limit migration and we need to stop people from coming here, none of them have any merit when you look at the data and the facts. Um, on the contrary, if we allowed people to move freely, if we allowed workers to come here, it benefits the U.S. by improving the economy here, and it benefits the country that they've come from because people often remit money back to those countries and it contributes to the economy there. So that the open borders and free migration would have a global net benefit to it. And so what, what the case that I make is that we just need to talk about that and to think about what a world might look like where people were allowed to move freely around um, to different countries. Yeah, actually, there's one bit at um, toward the very end of your book, Violent Borders, that picks out a really, really great example that I'd never thought of, which is you suggest that in looking at what happens if we let people move freely between places, we can look at something like the border between Maryland and West Virginia, two different U.S. states. Uh, because there's double the income currently for the average person in Maryland versus West Virginia and zero restriction on crossing that border. And 
it seems to be going okay. It's not uh, some kind of crazy situation that no one can handle. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, there, there. I think there are lots of examples of that. Of, um, of you know, within the U.S., the, the kind of the vast economic inequalities between different regions um, doesn't require us to put up a fence or to put up a border to stop people from moving between those places. Also, the different cultural practices in different places, right? I mean, the way of life in Texas. Has, they have a unique way of life there that's different from New York, right? Um, but nevertheless, you can move freely between those two places, and it hasn't destroyed the culture of either place, right? Um, yeah. And so, uh, to me, a lot of the arguments in favor of um, restricting immigration um, don't don't stand up to any scrutiny based on the merits. Um, and so that's why, you know, it's the the that cutaway line from that Guardian article is probably a little bit strong, um, you know, but. Uh, um, but really, the, the truth is that immigration laws in the U.S. are based on racial exclusion, right? That's why the U.S. set up immigration laws starting in the 1880s. That's why the Border Patrol was established in 1924, was to protect an idea of racial purity, to protect a, an idea of a white country, and to exclude other people who were who were not eligible for citizenship in, in the 1920s, right? The U.S. had a the citizenship law in the United States re- restricted that to free white people um, until 1952. Um, so yeah. uh, it's really not that long ago um, that that other races, other ethnic groups were excluded from being able to be citizens. And so the idea of restricting immigration finds its origins in that. And if you look at the rhetoric today of, of Donald Trump, it, you can see those same sorts of ideas in the way that he talks about it, right? I mean, he talks about Mexicans as rapists, Mexicans as murderers, Mexicans as wanting to change the culture here, as as destroying American values. Um, it's exactly the same sort of ways that people in the 1880s talked about the Chinese, and in the 1920s talked about Italians coming to the United States. So it's really about a, a racial exclusion, not about um, any sort of logical, economic, or or social reasons to restrict movement. I feel like people hear that sort of background about the country and there's there's some patriotic element of, of them that just wants to reject thinking that about it. And I, I wonder if there's ways to make that easier to process. Maybe there's looking at the history of some other countries that have done that same kind of thing. Like in the book, you pick out how Canada and Australia and New Zealand all didn't have those exact laws, those exact years, but had similar policies that tried to keep their country mainly um, people who are seen as the white kind of race. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Australia had what what was termed the white Australia policy um, until the, oh. the 1960s, I believe. So it's pretty uh, direct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I think there's, there's a, a similar sort of a thing. I mean, really the history of all of these countries is, is colonial exploitation, right? Of going over and taking over other places um, and then installing a a white group as the the dominant people in that place, and so I definitely believe that a lot of Americans no longer subscribe to those sorts of racist ideas. Um, but we can't deny that that was the foundation of the country. We haven't spent much time saying that the violence at these borders is horrific. Uh, it just is, and yeah, there should be ways to lessen it in any possible way we can, not just for you know canny uh, political reasons or something like that. But I think people know. I think they get it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's you know, in some ways, it's been heartening for me over the last couple of years because. 
you know, I've been thinking about these, the violence at borders and these exclusions for 15 years. Um, but in the last two or three years, it's suddenly become a much more mainstream issue. Um, and although, you know, the, in some ways, that's the product of Trump, right? Of, of his bombastic rhetoric about immigrants and um, his just terrible treatment of people who are trying to immigrate um, has made a lot more people aware of this issue, right? I mean, right now, the idea of abolish ICE, um, abolish Immigration and Customs Enforcement is an increasingly mainstream idea on the left in the United States. Um, you know, it would have been hard for me to predict that three or four years ago. So I think that there is some progress in this way. But I would suggest that we need to think bigger about it, right? That just getting rid of ICE um, doesn't solve the larger issue of um, immigration restrictions and the violence that's happening at the border in the U.S., but also at a lot of other countries around the world. And when you say bigger, sort of an international approach to the whole thing or a, a more fundamental change in how we view borders? What, how, how big can we get? <laughs> um, I really, I believe that the world would be a much better place if we allowed, if we saw movement as a fundamental human right, if we thought of the right to move from one place to another as something that was just a natural thing that humans should be able to do, that they should not be bound by the lottery of their birth, something that they have no control over um, that completely restricts their life chances, but rather they should have the freedom to move from one place to another. You mentioned the case of the United States. I mean, we have that system right now in the U.S. for 330 million people. You know, I, I live in Hawaii right now. I'm a citizen of Hawaii. I pay my taxes here. Um, I get my driver's license here. I obey the laws of Hawaii. But if I wanted to move to California, I can move there. And then I pay my taxes there. I obey the laws there. Um, and uh, I think that, that we should strive for some sort of a similar system at a global scale. Yeah, that's a. it seems like such a novel idea to me. At the same time, in the book, you suggest that we've also had enormous sea changes on things like who gets to vote that happened in a relatively fast amount of time because people committed it to making it happen. One thing that we often get trapped in is a sense of presentism, right? That, that the way that things are right now seems like it has to be permanent. And right now, we live in this system of, of nation states um, and of political power bound within borders in this particular sort of way. Um, but this is a really new thing. Really, it's not until after World War II that most of the world um, it becomes independent countries and have this current configuration of power. Um, you know, there, there are previous eras. There's an era where there were the colonial powers, right? And then if you go further back, there were city-states. And if you go further back, there's a period where there are no countries anywhere. And so it's not that hard to suggest that going forward in the future, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, that there'll be some sort of a different configuration of power um, that, that won't necessarily be based on borders. Yeah, and, I, and now I'm thinking of Ecuador again. Good for them for their constitution. <laughs> yes. what, a, what a group. <laughs> we can all strive to be Ecuadorian. <laughs> Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Dr. Reese Jones for sharing his fascinating expertise with us and helping me realize America has had Coca-Cola and jazz longer than it has had a border patrol. Not that much of a tradition, guys. 
And hey, you, why don't you cross on over into our food notes where you will find Dr. Jones' excellent book, Violent Borders. You'll also find a pre-order for his next book, Open Borders, and you'll find many of his editorials for outlets like The Guardian. That book, Open Borders, comes out in February of 2019. So that's on the way. And it will be, I'm sure, even more timely. Really glad I got to talk to him while he's in the run-up of getting that together. You know what else I'm glad about? Our next live episode of this show will be September 15th. That is a Saturday at UCB Sunset in Los Angeles. Mark that on your calendars now. Probably probably a fall calendar with a fall songbird or a fall tree. I don't know. What's your deal with calendars? Cars? A lot of people have cars. Anyway, check that out. And in the meantime, today's episode's theme music was Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy. Hey, welcome, Jordan. It was also edited by Chris Souza. You're the man, Chris. And if you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing Mike Pence uses to stage pictures of himself pretending to help build walls in places where there are already walls. Uh, He also uses it to stage pictures of walking out of Indianapolis Colts games. Uh, He stages pictures where he respects Donald Trump. You know, there's a lot of acting there. It's a masterclass. I'll tell you what. Meanwhile, I am a masterclass in tweeting about Snoopy on my Twitter account at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got show dates and my newsletter and more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.